2: Nanotech products are the next big thing. Manufacturers like kids in a toy store at the moment. They've got this this new technology, nanosilver, and they're just putting it everywhere. They're so excited about it, but nobody's really thinking about the long-term consequences of that.
1: How does nanotech measure up safety-wise? Nobody knows, when things get very small, they get very weird. Coming up, Let's Get Small, the first in a series of stories about nanotechnology. Also, preserving biodiversity as if your life depended on it.
3: When I give a child a vaccine, which is probably the most important thing I do as a doctor to prevent disease, how do I know that that vaccine is safe? And the answer is because of the horseshoe crab.
1: Crabs and frogs and microbes, oh my, biodiversity. These stories this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
4: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. According to a new report by the Federal Energy Information Administration, the world's demand for energy will increase by 50% over the next two decades. Most will come from coal, gas, and oil. Ironically, the study was released precisely 20 years to the day that NASA scientist James Hansen testified before Congress that global warming caused by the burning of fossil fuels was a threat to the planet. June 23, 1988, was a sweltering day in Washington, the hottest on record, and Dr. Hansen certainly took some heat for his public position. He was lambasted by climate change deniers and nearly lost his government job. This past week, to commemorate that anniversary, Dr. Hansen was invited to testify before a House special committee on global warming, and at a National Press Club luncheon in his honor, he was toasted by former Colorado Senator Timworth.
5: Jim Hansen is a hero of science, a hero of our planet, and our honored guest today. So please join me in welcoming Dr. James Hansen.
1: But in the 20 years since Hansen first warned lawmakers of human-caused climate change, Congress hasn't passed any law mandating cuts in greenhouse gas emissions. Dr. James Hansen.
5: Actually, uh, it's not a time to celebrate. Although this issue has become... Popular, the fact of the matter is that the emissions are continuing basically unfettered.
1: Since Hansen's 1988 testimony, 21 new coal fired power plants have been built in the United States, and our emissions of carbon dioxide have climbed 18 percent.
5: Hansen blames energy company executives for inaction. And it's largely because of fossil fuel special interests who have supported what I would call misinformation. In my opinion, I say that if they don't change their tactics, that they're guilty of crimes against humanity and nature. Time is not on our side, warns James Hansen. Back
1: in 1988, when he first testified, the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was 350 parts per million. He calls that a tipping point for the planet.
5: What I can say with a very high degree of confidence, I would say more than 99.9% certain that the safe level of CO2 is no more than 350 ppm, the long-term safe level. And we have already passed that level. Today, the amount of CO2 in the
1: atmosphere is 385 parts per million. And organizers of a new environmental group called 350.org say that's got to come down. 350 parts per million may be the new atmospheric gold standard for some, but Richard Alley, professor of geosciences at Penn State University, says it's not gospel
6: it is certainly not a sacred or a magic number. Um, people have tried asking experts how how high before you get scared, how high before you get scared. And the experts came back and said, scared about what? If we're worried about rare and endangered species, even a little bit that starts forcing them to migrate out of their little island of, of ecosystem and there's nowhere to go because there's a cornfield in the way, makes you really nervous. If you're worried about the global economy, you might be able able to bump it up a little bit higher. And so this 350 is some experts, some thinkers looking at the whole weight of things and saying, that's where I get nervous.
1: Well, right now we got 385 parts per million. We're looking at a 10% reduction if they want to go back to 350. So how do we reduce our, you know, parts per million from 385 to 350?
6: There's this huge recipe of possibilities that you can do. You can take the CO2 out of the air and put it back in the ground. You can take it from the power plant or take it from the air, and people are trying to figure out how to do that. You get more economy out of the fossil fuel that you use. You um, replace the fossil fuel with something else that doesn't raise CO2. Well,
1: there are countries that are working you know, very aggressively to reduce their uh, carbon levels, but if even the United States decided to go on board with them, would it matter if China and India didn't?
6: We can't solve the problem by ourselves, but I don't think that the world can solve the problem without us.
1: Well, Professor Richard Alley, thank you very much.
6: A real pleasure. Thank you.
1: Richard Alley is a professor of geosciences at Penn State University. Well, if you lived in the Arctic, you'd already have noticed the effects of climate change. The Arctic sea ice is melting at a rapid and accelerating pace, and it's having a dramatic effect on the permafrost, the permanently frozen tundra. That according to a new study by the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Andrew Slater
7: from the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder, Colorado, worked on the study. The climate system is quite interconnected, and one of the primary situations that you have happening here is something called the ice albedo feedback. And what happens is is the, the sea ice melts, and the sea ice is quite reflective. It's white, it's bright, and then when it melts, what you have is you have the dark ocean exposed. The dark ocean is dark, and it absorbs a lot of solar radiation, and that heats up whereas the sea ice is nice and bright and it won't heat up as much and it's limited to, of course, the freezing point. So you have the permafrost thawing, so what? That creates a lot of problems for uh, infrastructure up in the north. Uh, You've got roads that will become rather degraded. You've got buildings that can possibly collapse. States like Alaska are, are quite concerned about this because that can add a 10 to 20% increase in the cost of maintaining infrastructure. And then the other real surprise package that we haven't seen emerge yet but is definitely a potential is uh, possibly the release of further greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide and methane from the carbon stored in the soils.
1: Where does the carbon stored in the soil come from?
7: Well, up in the north where it's nice and cold, each year you get some vegetation growing and then it dies. And then because it's so cold, that vegetation does not decompose fully. Now, when it does start to get warm, that vegetation that has been stored in the soil can start to decompose. And when it decomposes, it can release possibly CO2 or methane.
1: So how much um,
7: methane or carbon dioxide is there in Arctic soil that's defrosting? That is an uncertain number at the moment, but current estimates would say that there is about 950 gigatons. Now, I'm not sure what that number means to a lot of people, but if you took the 950 gigatons and converted it to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you would more than double the current concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That, of course, is a somewhat worst case scenario.
1: Ooh, and that's carbon dioxide. You also said there was methane, which is much more powerful as a greenhouse gas.
7: Yes, well, the carbon that is stored in the soil, it depends on how it decomposes. If it Generally, if it decomposes in a drier fashion, it, it can come out as carbon dioxide. Or if it decomposes under a wet situation uh, and you get anaerobic decomposition, you can get methane coming out. And methane, as you said, is a far more powerful greenhouse gas, but that is shorter-lived in the atmosphere.
1: So the sea ice is melting because of global warming. That's causing the thawing of the soil, the permafrost. That's releasing carbon dioxide and perhaps methane, and that's getting things warmer.
7: That is the worst-case scenario, and, yes, that is a, a set of positive feedbacks, as in all the feedbacks reinforce each other. And accelerate. Yeah, that's exactly right, yes. So if I was to go, say, to the Arctic Circle
1: and stand about 500 miles from the seashore and had a thermometer, would it be warmer there than it was, say, 20 years ago?
7: Yes, there is definitely a, a warming signal in the Arctic, and the Arctic has warmed more than any other region uh, on Earth. And what's the temperature then?
1: How, how much has it increased over the last 20 years?
7: The, the rate of warming in the Arctic is at least double that of what has been seen across the rest of the world in terms of a global mean. So, Dr. Slater, what
1: effect does this melting have on the land, have to, you know,
7: terrestrial species? What happens? Areas that were formerly just tundra in the last 50 years have seen an encroachment of shrubs. And shrubs, that's a sign that, well, the soil there is thawing and it's uh, more amenable to shrub growth and woody growth. And maybe following the shrubs, you might get movement of the tree line. An important point to to throw in there is that, well, we are seeing shrubs encroaching and shrubs and trees, of course, are a carbon sink. So what you could have is the carbon that's in the atmosphere being taken up and stored in this new vegetation. So formerly you had very small vegetation on the tundra. Now you've got large vegetation in the form of trees and shrubs and that can be a negative feedback, so it can suck up some of that carbon dioxide that has been put in the atmosphere.
1: So it may be literally planting the the seeds of new hope in this warming.
7: That is indeed a potential. It's not just a doom and gloom runaway situation. There's a lot of other things that can happen.
1: Dr. Slater, thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you.
7: Okay, thanks very much, Bruce.
1: Andrew Slater is a research scientist at the National Snow and Ice Data Center and co-author of a new study on permafrost appearing in the latest edition of Geophysical Research Letters. Scientists have been at the forefront in drawing world attention to global warming, despite attacks from naysayers who believe climate change is just a bunch of bunk. Of course, scientists must determine for themselves their role in society and their responsibility for their discoveries. And this week, we remember one scientist who labored mightily to undo his work. Biologist Arthur Galston conducted early research that led to the development of Agent Orange, the powerful herbicide the U.S. used to lay waste to much of Vietnam. When Professor Galston realized how the defoliant was being used, he led the effort to stop it. President Richard Nixon banned Agent Orange five years before the war ended. In 2003, Arthur Galston told Living on Earth that students need to be taught the risks of conducting scientific research.
5: I tell them that they can never feel immune from the danger of producing a result that will be misused and that it's their social responsibility to enter the fray, even at the cost of uh, having to divert themselves from their further research activity. You've got to uh, write articles, you've got to speak, you've got to... uh, Join with others, you've got to testify in Congress, you've got to do what you can to try to regulate the findings and the use of scientific information in such a way that it will benefit society rather than act as a harmful uh, input.
1: Plant biologist and bioethicist Arthur Galston died June 15th. He was 88. Coming up, nano-silver away! Small things considered on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The nanotechnology industry says that very good things will come in very small packages, promising breakthrough medical cures, new materials, and revolutionary products. But those tiny packages could also contain some nasty surprises. Nanotechnology deals in the smallest of the small, down at the size of atoms and molecules. But at that scale, things get really strange. Carbon nanotubes are stronger than steel, and nano-gold turns intense red. Living on Earth is thinking big about small things with a new series of stories on nanotechnology we call Let's Get Small. Today, Living on Earth's Jeff Young does a little shopping and finds
8: nano-silver. I'm shopping in a Korean grocery store in Germantown, Maryland, with scientist Andrew Maynard. Maynard has just one item on his shopping list.
2: This is a a toothpaste that is imported from Korea that uses nano-silver particles, so we're going to see whether we can find it on the shelves here.
8: Maynard studies nanotechnology for the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington. After a little poking around, he finds toothpaste that claims that nano-silver will get your teeth cleaner.
2: I don't know about this particular toothpaste, but certainly silver as an antimicrobial works very well. It's a very potent antimicrobial agent. But of course the question is, if you've got something which is so effective, you've got to work out how to use it sensibly, how to use it wisely. And that seems to be what's lacking at the moment.
8: Were you surprised to see products like this start to show up?
2: Yes, I've been particularly surprised at products like this, where you're putting nanosilver into something where it can definitely get into the body, either with toothpaste in this form or in um, kids' toys, kids' pacifiers even. It's almost as if manufacturers like kids in a toy store at the moment, they've got this this new technology, nanosilver, and they're just putting it everywhere. They're so excited about it, but nobody's really thinking about the long-term consequences of that.
8: Maynard put the nano silver toothpaste on his rapidly growing list of nanotechnology products already on store shelves. More than a third of them, about 260 so far, are made with nano silver. Maynard keeps a few on his desk.
2: This is perhaps my favorite. We have Benny the Bear, who is a soft plush toy uh, that has uh, an inside foam which is impregnated with nanometer sized silver particles.
8: And here's uh, some socks. Same idea?
2: Ultrafresh business socks, which contain, again, silver nanoparticles. The idea is they kill the bugs that lead to smelly feet. So, in principle, you can wear these for longer without uh, developing antisocial habits.
8: Eventually, however, you're going to want to wash those socks... Researchers at Arizona State University found that after about four or five washings, most brands start to leak their nano silver particles, which go out with the water. And of course, nano silver toothpaste is largely going down the drain. Then what?
0: For most uh, communities in the country, the wastewater treatment plant is. The first entity to uh, receive these materials. That's
8: Cal Bayer Anderson, a health scientist tracking nanotechnology for the Environmental Defense Fund. She's been hearing from people who manage sewage plants who want to know what nanosilver might do to wastewater treatment.
9: Bacteria, beneficial
0: bacteria, are very important to this process. They uh, degrade or break down uh, organic constituents that are present in the wastewater. If you're introducing something like nanosilver, which is antibacterial, and you wind up killing the good bacteria, that will essentially put a halt to the treatment process. Silver, in its
8: regular form, can show up in wastewater from photo developing and metal working shops. Federal regulations limit how much can be emitted into rivers, lakes, and bays, and for good reason. Silver, while largely benign for humans, is highly toxic to many freshwater fish. George Kimbrell at the nonprofit International Center for Technology Assessment filed a petition with the Environmental Protection Agency asking that nanosilver products be treated as pesticides. Nanosilver
6: is quite a bit more toxic, 45 times more by one study, than bulk silver, almost like a s- silver on steroids. And we don't know what that will do to the bottom of the food chain, to ecosystems in general. And there's another concern
8: that nanosilver in the environment could create a threat to human health. Andrew Maynard of the Woodrow Wilson Center says widespread use could lead to resistant strains of bacteria.
2: Now, at the moment, silver is one of our last defen- defenses against some of these um, bugs, these, these microbes that are resistant to many other forms of antimicrobial um, agents. If we give the secret of our last best defense away, silver, it really leaves us with very little else to start killing some of these harmful agents.
8: It, it is literally the silver bullet.
2: It literally is the silver bullet, and I think we've got to use it judiciously.
8: Maynard says all this points to a glaring need for more study into potential environment and health risks. And some on Capitol Hill agree. Congress is working this summer to reauthorize funding for the National Nanotechnology Initiative – the initiative, managed by the White House Office of Science and Technology, coordinates about $1.3 billion of nanotech research among a dozen federal agencies. However, only about 3% of that money went to health and environment research. Tennessee Democrat Bart Gordon, who chairs the House Science Committee, thinks that should be much higher.
10: I don't think they've done enough, although, to their credit, they have doubled the funding in the last couple of years. But more needs to be done and we're going to hold their feet to the fire.
8: Gordon says he wants society to realize the benefits of nanotechnology. He's worried that development of good products could be stifled if the first products to market strike the public as unsafe. He points to the example of genetically modified crops.
10: They were put out there before there was really good research, which then could give the public confidence. And there were, there's a black cloud over it to some extent. I want to get that research so that we can get that public acceptance where it should be for nanotechnology so that it can help us with energy independence and and so many other ways.
8: There are indications that nano silver may be starting to lose its shine for some businesses. Consider the case of Benny the Bear. You remember the nano stuffed animal we met earlier? Benny's been getting some good publicity lately.
3: Well, this looks like a regular stuffed animal to me.
0: You know, it does, but it actually is a very special little guy. He's the first antimicrobial bear, so he's safe for kids with allergies, allergies, what that translates to. Let's give
11: one out. Here you go. Oh,
8: hey! Benny the bear! But Benny's makers do not like the kind of publicity NanoSilver's been getting. Roy Sharda is a partner in Pure Plushie, the Chicago business that created Benny. We have used nanosilver in the past. There's a lot of speculation as to how much uh, nanosilver technology is accepted. And uh, anytime you see controversy, you try to sort of avoid it. Charda has stopped using nanosilver in Benny the Bear. He says there are just too many questions about the material and how government might regulate it. But Sharda still believes in nanotechnology and thinks that in the long run, the nano silver dispute will be good if it brings more research. I think it's, it's better to have this phase of controversy and have the truth come out than the other way around. Call it the silver lining in the nanosilver products. Yes, commercialization may be getting ahead of needed research, but putting these products in the public's hands could start an overdue national conversation on nanotechnology, with more people asking the big questions about these tiny materials. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington.
1: In the coming weeks, you'll hear more about the small stuff with big potential in our series, Let's Get Small. But if you can't wait for more information on nanotechnology, go to our website, LOE.org.
3: Summertime, and the living is easy.
1: It's summertime, but this year the living ain't so easy. Not with the soaring price of energy putting a damper on vacation trips. But if you want to save some green and be green on your upcoming summer holiday, Tobin Hack may be able to help. She's assistant editor at Plenty Magazine, and she joins me from New York City where a green zine is based. Plenty just came out with its travel issue, but with gas prices so high, Tobin, I'm thinking a lot of folks must be downsizing their travel plans.
0: They certainly are. People are staying closer to home. You know, plane tickets are clearly rising in cost, and, and airlines are even cutting services. Uh, and people are scrambling for train tickets. Amtrak is very, very happy about the rising gas price. Ridership has risen over 10 percent from last year. It's uh, it's a big change in American travel patterns.
1: When I was, you know, growing up, you could use the old Thumbmobile, but you can't do that anymore. <laughs>
0: Well, I can't recommend hitchhiking, but I can recommend ride-sharing services like GoLoco, for example. So you go online and and look for other people who might be, for example, driving from New York to Boston, and you might be traveling with strangers, but you can check them out ahead of time, make sure they're make sure they're okay.
1: So, how do I pick a
0: place? Well, we have a, a road trip feature in our current magazine. Uh, sort of guiding people around the country to various green destinations. And just think about what you, you haven't maybe explored or enjoyed in your area. If you live in California, think about taking an organic wine tasting trip up the coast, you know, rent a Prius and do that. Or um, if you live in Michigan, go head out to Mackinac Island, which is a car-free island, so you get there and you'll be traveling around by foot or, or even by horse and buggy, a really low CO2 way to go.
1: Well, once you get there, you've got to stay someplace. I like this place in New Mexico, Earthship World Headquarters.
0: That's architect Michael Reynolds. He's a really groundbreaking architect who works with, believe it or not, trash. He builds these structures called earthships out of old tires, old beer bottles, old soda cans, and this one, obviously, you can you can actually go stay in. Uh, they're sort of dome-like, and they're really cool-looking, sort of futuristic off the grid, very sustainable. You
1: can trash the place before you even get there. <laughs> I was looking at some travel pages, and um, it seems cruise ships are an affordable way of going.
0: Cruise ships do have a, a large footprint. You know, these these really big cruise ships can hold as many as 5,000 people, and they're dumping sewage into the ocean. They're They're not a great way to go. So what we like to recommend instead is Go with a smaller cruise ship expedition like Lindblad or Cruise North Expedition. Lindblad actually partners with the World Wildlife Foundation and National Geographic to promote conservation. So they're working for conservation in that way. And they also, a smaller group is always a more ego way to go. Another great option is just to go by sailboat. Explore Greece by catamaran, for example. Explore Maine by sailboat. You'll really get to know the place better. And it's so much more relaxing.
1: I know a lot of people like to volunteer. On their vacations, you know, they work a whole year and then they take two weeks off and volunteer.
0: Volunteerism is a great way to go, and it's really growing in popularity. I like to say, you know, hedonism is out. It's Today it's all about getting your hands dirty while you're on vacation, having some fun, but also giving back. You might be scuba diving in the Bahamas uh, with an underwater clipboard collecting coral reef data or following bottlenose dolphins in the Mediterranean off of Greece. Um studying meerkats or hyenas in South Africa, and you know you'll you 'll not only learn a lot but you'll you'll come home with definitely a renewed interest in conservation and a new area of expertise
1: so so Tobin,
0: where are you planning to go this summer i 'm going to be working <laughs> but let 's see if can I pick my dream destination sure. <laughs> You know, I've always, I've always wanted to go ride a horse in the Rocky Mountains. I think I might do that. I might head out to Montana.
1: Well, Tobin, if you go out you know, west, that's uh, a long trip. Uh, how do you make that a green trip?
0: Well, one thing you can do in terms of air travel, of course, is offset your flight. It's a controversial step that people take, but it's better than nothing. An average length flight will only cost you about $20 to offset. Controversial how, Tobin? I think a lot of critics feel that the money you pay doesn't make up for the CO2 that's emitted. But, you know, all of these offsetting and and ego steps are evolving. And the important thing is to be making the effort to be exploring the options.
1: Tobin Hack is an assistant editor at Plenty Magazine. To find out more about greening your vacation, check out our website, LOE.org. Tobin, it was a pleasure.
0: Thanks so much, Bruce.
1: The spike in gas prices has an increasing number of people turning to spokes. Spokes on bikes, that is. According to Merrill Lynch, bike sales are up 5% this year, while car sales are stalled down 11%. And even in bike-treacherous Los Angeles, where the car is king and rules the road, sales of two-wheel, people-powered machines are brisk. LOE's Ingrid Lobet sent us this audio postcard from a bike shop in L.A.
9: My name is Candice Rancier. I am the manager of Palm Cycle. My family has owned Palm Cycle since the 1960s. The store has been here since the 1930s. It's pretty much known as the oldest store in Los Angeles, as far as we know. Since it's been getting hotter and the gas price has been going up, we have a lot of repairs. I basically can't keep anything in stock. The biggest uh, favorite lately is the, the grocery bag panniers. They attach to a rack on the back of your bike and they fit grocery bags in them perfectly. The lights, the locks, helmets, stuff that people use pretty much every day to go to work. We've been ordering a lot of bags and baskets too because people have been pretty much using their bikes to go to work. My repair department is booked almost two weeks out. Doing probably about 10 tune-ups a day, along with the walk-ins and brand-new bicycle builds that we have to put on the floor. It's pretty much gotten to the point where bikes are actually, it's a lot less to start buy a bike than it is to pay for gas for a month. The big problem now for us though as a business is because the gas prices are going up, so are the bicycles. Every week I get a new price list from one of my companies saying that the bikes went up 10 to 20 percent because the tires and the grips and a lot of the materials that are on the bicycles are made of petroleum. All the bikes are made in China or Taiwan so they're shipped over here and then of course they're shipped over into the warehouse and then they have to be shipped to us. If the gas prices keep going up this way, I think we're going to see a lot more bikes on the street, actually. Hi.
1: Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet rides her bike in Los Angeles and produced our story. Living on Earth's Ashley Ahern rides her bike in Boston and recently got an earful from some bicycling commuters during rush hour.
4: For the light changes here, what's the best part about riding your bike to work? Um, not being in a
0: car.
6: Good exercise. You get some fresh air.
2: Um, my commute on the T is usually about an hour. On biking, it's a half hour.
7: It's, it's really wakes me up. It's better than coffee, I think.
0: You make, you know, commuting recreation instead of a chore. And what's the pits about riding a bike in the morning to work? Sweating.
4: Yeah, when I get to work, I have to sink shower, which is kind of nasty. The traffic, the potholes, the bike lanes, people opening their car doors,
0: cutting in. How about traffic? Have you had any close calls? In 26 years, I've had very
4: few uh, problems or times when I felt scared.
2: I've actually been hit. This woman ran right into me, totaled my bike, nearly crushed my foot, but luckily I was able to get away from that.
10: Oh, I've I've been hit several times, but, but it wasn't any major thing, and usually the cars just drive away. You get bike rage. Yes.
3: <laughs> yeah, I get bike rage. And uh, it's unfortunate. So I, I try to stick out my tongue instead of give the finger, but it's hard to resist.
4: Drivers are bad, but so are bikers and so are pedestrians. We're all
10: out
0: for ourselves rather than, like, following the rules. They <laughs> do say Boston drivers are the worst. Are Boston bikers the worst? Um, I think we all are about equal. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. No problem. Have a good commute. You too.
1: Gripes, groans, and grinding gears on the mean streets of Boston, collected by Living on Earth's Ashley O'Hearty.
4: I rode my bicycle past your window last night.
1: Coming up, biodiversity. What's in it for you? Stay tuned to Living on Earth.
4: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Plankton get no respect. The tiny marine animals aren't charismatic like polar bears, cuddly like pandas, or awe-inspiring like whales. But without plankton, the whole ocean food web would unravel, which is starting to happen in some places. One of them, Helgoland in the North Sea, where Radio Deutsche Welle's Andrew Ryan traveled for our story.
12: Our small white research vessel pitches across the channel that divides the two islands of Helgoland— Storm clouds are gathering overhead, but with our fluorescent orange rain gear, we'll stay dry as a bone. This is a typical research run, and our mission is to check the water temperature and salinity, and pull in samples of both water and marine life.
11: What you see now is a big net, which has just been put in, and we will tow it. It's uh, called a Kofi, where we will actually sieve out all the small organisms. Um, And when... uh, When it comes back on board, you'll see that it's sort of like a a big soup.
12: That's Professor Karen Wiltshire, one of the directors of the Alfred Wegener Institute's Helgoland Marine Research Station. She's my guide for today's sea excursion. What's going to be in our soup today?
11: Well, my guess is that there will be very, very many microalgae, little tiny algae, and you won't actually see them with the naked eye except that you'll see this sort of sludge. And if you look at it under the microscope, there are millions and millions of little
12: cells. It doesn't sound like the most delicious soup, but for marine creatures, this is a veritable buffet. But as we'll find out, the menu is changing, and with those changes come new customers. Workers hoist in a long white gauze net, which looks a bit like a windsock. Then they pour the contents into a bucket.
11: It's not very much in it at the moment, actually. There's not so much in it, right?
12: So it's kind of a brown sludgy color. Yeah,
11: and actually the brown in it is most likely uh, microalgae because oh. they have pigments because they photosynthesize.
12: Is this the uh, phytoplankton?
11: Yeah, exactly. It's the phytoplankton. Those are the ones that we're looking at very closely here because they're at the bottom of the food chain. It's what basically everyone feeds on. So if something changes at the bottom, you can affect an upward cascading effects. So that's why we look... At it every day.
12: Marine biologists have been monitoring changes in the waters around Helgoland every day since 1962. And the biggest change they've noticed has been the temperature, which has gone up 1.5 degrees Celsius in the last 50 years. And even more dramatically, the winter temperatures alone have increased by 4 degrees. As a result, fish like cod, which like cold water, have moved north. And near Helgoland, researchers have seen an influx of warm water fish like red mullet and a diverse array of jellies and little crustaceans. Karen Wiltshire says that warmer water has also had a profound effect on the ocean's microalgae, the phytoplankton.
11: Well, what we see is that the timing of the spring bloom uh, is is very much affected by how warm it is uh, in winter. It's just like on land you end up having the plants starting to grow uh, in early spring and it's the, here it's the same in the sea. You've got microalgae which start to grow and then things feed on it and then everything starts to get going. And if that timing is changed, you have shifts in the whole uh, food chain structure.
12: She says that if it's warm in winter, then the algae are prematurely eaten away. That means they don't have time to build up biomass. And then other organisms who rely on them for food suffer. Some researchers say that those changes even have an effect on the largest animals in our world's oceans, the whales. Back on the boat, workers have brought the net in once again. And it looks like they've pulled in a new catch here. Um, And this one seems to be full of...
11: Lots of jellyfish, big jellyfish. It's 10.5 degrees, which is warm.
12: The water is warm.
11: Yeah, it is warm. And these are huge jellyfish for this time of the year. I mean, they've been feeding well. So the water's been warm all winter.
12: And there is more evidence of changes taking place. A moment later, we find an unusually large comb jelly, a transparent organism with tiny hairs on the outside that shimmer in the light. It looks like a jellyfish, and it feeds on, among other things, plankton.
11: Oh, yeah. That must have been there all winter.
12: And it's transparent. And probably about, what, four centimeters or In
11: this case, yeah, there's a smaller one here. I'm used to these small ones. Look there, see? That's more what I'm used to in size.
12: A little smaller than a grape.
11: Exactly, yeah. Maybe about the size of an almond. Yeah, exactly. That means this guy has been here for a while, so... He had a good winter.
12: He's been having some uh, good dinners on yeah, uh, phytoplankton exactly. there. They
11: can eat a whole bucket of phytoplankton, just like or zooplankton actually, mostly.
12: The question is then, with new larger feeders munching on it all winter, is the phytoplankton endangered?
11: Well, I would say it's certain species are endangered, not the whole group of phytoplankton. It's biodiversity that you 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 have to worry about, you know, and changes in species composition of of phytoplankton populations. It's not actually the fact that they're all going to die out.
12: But Karen Wilcher says that the real danger is, and they know this from land-based food chains, if you remove one link from the chain, it could cause the whole system to collapse. Now it's time to go back to the Alfred Wegener Institute with our buckets of water and seafood. I mean, marine life.
0: This
11: this is the lab where we count all our samples.
12: Marine biologists are busy preparing the water sample that we caught earlier. They fix it with a few drops of iodine, which kills the organisms, and then pour a tiny amount onto a glass tray. That's what goes under the microscope and gets counted.
11: Maybe you would like to just have a look in.
12: Okay, so I'm going to have a look into the
11: uh,
12: microscope. Are those plankton?
11: That's plankton, phytoplankton.
12: I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen phytoplankton. Yeah, exactly. For a moment, just one short magical moment, I marveled at how the weight of our oceans rests on the well-being and proliferation of this tiny organism known as plankton. Andrew Ryan, Helgoland.
1: Our story about plankton comes to us courtesy of Radio Deutsche Welle. Variety isn't just the spice of life, it's essential for life. According to the new book, Sustaining Life, How Human Health Depends Upon Biodiversity, we need birds, bugs, and bacteria a lot more than they need us. We use them for medicines, biomedical and agricultural research, and new materials. But we're wiping out vast numbers of species, and ultimately, we'll pay the price. Joining me in the studio are the co-editors of Sustaining Life, Drs. Eric Shivian and Aaron Bernstein. Dr. Shivian is founder and director of Harvard Medical School's Center for Health and the Global Environment. Dr. Bernstein is a research associate at the center and a clinical fellow in pediatrics at Children's Hospital Boston and Boston Medical Center. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bruce. Let me start with you, Dr. Shivian. Why a book on Sustaining Life? Why a book on biodiversity?
10: More than a hundred scientists worked with Ari and myself in putting this book together. We did this because it's been our sense that the loss of biodiversity and other issues like climate change are too abstract for people to grasp. It's too far from their everyday life. And it was our conviction that if people really understood their connection to nature, by looking at the impacts on their health from losing species, then they would really do everything in their power to protect it.
1: You write in your book that we're going through right now the sixth great extinction period in the history of the planet, and this is the one that could be the worst, and it's the one that, well, I guess we're causing.
3: That's right. Uh, If you look back at the history of life on Earth, there have been five great extinction events, and the present extinction event has been called the sixth because the rate of species loss is on par with the past five, the most recent of which was 65 million years ago. That extinction event occurred as the result of an asteroid landing in the Gulf of Mexico and causing a huge cloud to essentially block off all sunlight on the Earth. That wiped out the dinosaurs, as well as about half of all the species alive on Earth at that time. The rate of species extinctions then is about the same as the rate of a species extinction today.
1: But the difference is, is that we're responsible for it and not an asteroid.
3: That's correct. So I think it's
10: important for us to recognize that we are not endangering life on Earth. We are endangering ourselves. This conceit that we are so powerful that we are going to wipe out life on Earth is just a falsehood. It's going to continue, evolve over several more millions of years and do just fine. But we may not be around to see it. One of the animals that
1: is defied kind of evolutionary history is the horseshoe crab. I mean, it's been around forever and ever, and it hasn't changed much. And I didn't realize the important place it holds in the pharmacopedia of the world.
3: Yeah, anyone listening to this who feels old, all you have to do is read about the horseshoe crab and you'll feel like a kid again.
7: 50 million years.
3: Yeah, and then some. Horseshoe crabs are the great survivors of evolution and the FDA's gold standard tests to detect the presence of bacterial contamination in our vaccine supply. When I give a child a vaccine, which is probably the most important thing I do as a doctor to prevent disease, how do I know that that vaccine is safe? And the answer is because of the horseshoe crab. We rely upon the blood of the horseshoe crab to detect the presence of so-called gram-negative bacteria that may contaminate the vaccine supply. And without it, we would really have an incredible breach in public health potentially.
10: How many species are there on the planet? Do we know? Well, scientists have identified somewhere between 1.5 and 1.75 million species that they've given Latin names to. And there are estimates anywhere from 10 times that to even 100 times that. But it's clear that we only know a small fraction of the species on Earth. We know very little, for example, about species in the deep oceans. We know almost nothing about microbial species. There have been, for example, 700 distinct bacterial species identified in the human mouth alone. There's a termite whose guts have been opened up, and they identified more than 400 different bacterial microbial species in the gut of that termite. Does another termite have another 400? We know almost nothing about life on this planet. One of the fascinating parts about your book
1: is how you connect the dots, how you make diversity matter to to me. And it's the microbes that take center stage.
3: I think it's, it's easier for people to really grasp what we like to call the charismatic megafauna. These are the critters that are kept in zoos, and, and they can really visualize them and have a sense that they exist. The reality, though, is that the microbial world is not only where the majority of genetic diversity exists, but it's also where our health depends in immeasurable proportions on the antibiotics I prescribe every day in my practice that I give to children to treat common childhood diseases through the most life-threatening diseases we see come from microbes. Without those microbes, we wouldn't have those medicines.
1: You write about the South American leapfrog, and you say it has the potential of antibiotic library of enormous potential. The leapfrog?
3: (laughs) The leapfrog. One of the extraordinary attributes of many amphibians are antimicrobial peptides that they secrete uh, onto their skins. And while we don't fully understand why they do this, we do know that the compounds may be extraordinarily important for the treatment of bacterial infections. Most antibiotics we use When we use them too much, the bacteria develop resistance. So if we keep using the antibiotic, it no longer is able to treat the infection. And what the frog skin peptides have been shown to be capable of are essentially assaulting bacteria in ways that make them incapable of becoming resistant to them.
1: And amphibians are the most threatened of all species.
3: They are among the most threatened groups of organisms on Earth. About a third of all amphibian species are threatened with extinction.
1: I wanted to ask you about this frog that swallows its own eggs and then delivers a live birth. And you say there's something in that frog's stomach which will help us maybe cure ulcers.
10: The gastric brooding frog, they're two known species. They were both found in Australia. Uh, The female swallows the fertilized eggs. The eggs hatch in her stomach. They become tadpoles, and when they reach a certain level of development, the mother vomits them out into an aquatic environment where they complete their development and become adults. Now, all amphibians, all vertebrates, us as well, begin the process of digestion in our stomachs. We release acid and enzymes that starts digesting our food. So these tadpoles were found to secrete substances to stop the acid, to stop the enzymes, and to prevent them being emptied into the intestines. So scientists began to study these compounds because, yes, we have some ways of treating peptic ulcer disease, which affects 25 million Americans, but these compounds may have worked by a completely different mechanism, may have been much more effective than what we now do to treat ulcers, but these studies had to stop because both species of gastric brooding frogs went extinct. We will never know what those compounds were. It seems like we're sawing
1: off entire limbs of our of our family tree, the tree of life.
3: If only we were so deliberate. I think that the vast majority of the species lost is unwitting. I think in most cases we really don't understand our actions. And so it's imperative that people understand the biodiversity, the variety of life out there is connected to their own health so that they think about it in terms of how it may affect the species that their health depends on so it's changes to the biosphere are ultimately changes that can come back to themselves
1: if there was one species that you could save right now that's endangered that that really has consequence today in our lives what would it be
10: i i don't think i can answer that i think if we were talking about groups of species i could answer that and i would give you several candidates because all life on Earth is dependent on it. Plants. We have no oxygen without plants. Microbes of all types. The microbes that break down decaying organisms and and return the nutrients to the soil and to the oceans. Nitrogen-fixing bacteria... We would have uh, very few crops without uh, nitrogen fixing bacteria, putting nitrogen that's unusable from the atmosphere into the soil. You know, I'm somewhat biased as a member of the Homo sapiens that uh, I think I would like to uh, save us because we're such a powerful force, unfortunately, for destruction, but we're also a potentially powerful force for good. And that's why we dedicate this book to not only the plants and animals and microbes that we share this planet with, but we dedicate this book to Homo sapiens, our own species. And we say to them, may we have the wisdom and the love for our children and for all children to come to save the indescribably beautiful and precious gift we have been given.
1: Well, Dr. Shivian, thank you so very much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. And Dr. Bernstein, thank you very much.
3: A great pleasure, Bruce. Thank you.
1: Dr. Eric Chivian chaired the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985. Dr. Aaron Bernstein is a pediatrician in Boston. They're co-editors of the new book from Oxford University Press, Sustaining Life, How Human Health Depends Upon Biodiversity. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lovett, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. Our interns are Luke Borders, Kim Gittleson, and Jessica Lee Smith. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Liris-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. Steve Kerwit is our executive producer.
4: I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. The Skull Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs around the world. Uncommon heroes dedicated to the common good. Learn more at Skoll.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at PaxWorld.com.
12: PRI Public Radio International.